people make a living have changed dramatically over the last decade. Steady jobs are fewer because today, jobs are on demand. Companies want workers just when they need them and don't want them around if things are slower. Contract workers or freelancers have taken the place of full-timers, and a lot of gig workers don't have a boss. They have an app. Some estimates are that between 20 and 40 percent of all workers have been part of the gig economy at some point in the last year. Lately, there's more opportunities with things like Uber and Postmates and all of these different companies that are providing easy access and easy startup into doing gig work, into basically taking little side jobs. That's Jeff Chrysler, author and head of behavioral science for J.P. Morgan Private Bank. More and more people are doing it, and I think that's also a result of our economy shifting, where, you know, that 30-year, 40-year career in a company doesn't exist anymore, so more and more people are having gaps to fill, or they're finding themselves having to piece things together to get a little extra income here and there. I think that our understanding of what it means to be a worker has shifted a little bit, especially with the advent of a lot of online platforms that give people the opportunity to take a little bit more control over their work and their ability to make money. And as a result, we're seeing that there is some populations of workers who are willing to trade perhaps some of the security for their autonomy and freedom. Dr. Brianna Kaza is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and has extensively researched the gig economy. They might be choosing to engage in some of these online platforms or more contract-based work in order to have more discretion over their income and how they work. For some, the flexibility and the autonomy and the ability to sort of set your own rules, if you will, is great. If you have a regular job and when you're off duty, you feel like, oh, I could put on a couple hours driving Uber and make a few extra bucks, that's fantastic. I think where the challenge comes in is for those people who it's not just supplemental or it's not just a stopgap between you know full-time employment otherwise, but it becomes a source of their real livelihood, then it becomes a challenge because it's not predictable. It doesn't have what we often call hygiene factors like health insurance and unemployment insurance and rights, and you're not necessarily connected to a company like you are if you're a full-time employee. You're not part of the same culture. You hear that a lot about the gig economy. There seems to be two ends of the spectrum and not much in between. It can be a really good deal or not good at all. It depends on the gig and whether you're doing it by choice. People are really split about this, that there is a proportion of people who are doing this and do it by choice and report that they have been pulled into this. But there's a good portion of workers who report being pushed into this as well. And at the same time, there are people who report being both pushed and pulled. Some people are just doing this short-term side gigs so that they can meet some kind of pressing financial need or perhaps a career need because they're trying to train and transition into another career. But at least half of our sample report that they plan to do multiple jobs for the long term, that they feel strongly identified with being more than one thing. There are folks that get a chance to come in somewhere for a month or two and get paid really well for their expertise, and that's a wonderful situation to be in. But it is sort of a question of how you're treated by that organization. I mean, some people might fall into the gig work that are, you know, working the front line of fast food restaurants or retail stores, and then you are 
a little more taken advantage of. You're not paid well, and your schedule is not predictable, and there's a lot of stress involved. That's different from being sort of a uh, freelance executive director or a freelance sort of high-level position that they might give you more respect and autonomy and, of course, better pay and, and benefits. Both sides of the employment equation have sought to exploit the relationship. Contract workers with in-demand expertise can work when they want to for a sizable paycheck. Those in less demand don't have as much bargaining power, and Chrysler says employers know it. There are those that see those employees that see the benefit of the gig economy and don't want to be tied down and want to be able to pursue multiple interests and multiple sources and streams of income. But I also think that companies, not to be too cynical, but they see the advantage of the contract workers and gig workers for whom they don't have to provide benefits. They don't have to pay them for time off. If they get sick and they have to drop away for a week, they don't have to pay for that and they can just find someone to replace them. I mean, it's a, again, it's a cynical approach, but if you want to think sometimes it's a cynical world, companies do get an advantage of that if they believe they can replace people. There is increasing interest from the worker side, but as I've mentioned, there is a good portion of workers who are pushed into this, and this is not their ideal setup in terms of a job. And I think that there are significant mental health costs for those individuals. Those mental health challenges include identity. What we do and who we do it for is a big part of who we are. Chrysler says that's more important than you may think. What motivates people and incentivizes them and connects them to their organization and gets them engaged is not just a paycheck. In fact, pay is down low on the list. Obviously, you have to make ends meet, but it's other things. It's identity. It's purpose. It's social sort of system and inclusion. It's really having a reason to get up and be proud of what you're doing and who you are. I mean, work is so much of our lives that that is a big part of our identity. And if you can be proud of being part of Company X because Company X makes you feel valued and involved, you're going to be more engaged. You're going to work harder. Not just that sense of what motivates and what incentivizes, which is very important, but on the other end, the stress of not knowing your financial future and not being able to predict, we're seeing that affects workplace productivity and safety as much as, you know, having healthcare problems. It's stress, right? We know from other parts of our lives that stress impacts things. If we're always worried about the next gig, we're not going to be present on the current gig. So the more that you can be feeling part of the team and part of a cause and part of the identity and culture, the better it's going to be for everyone, for yourself and for the organization. It actually may take a certain kind of temperament for gig workers to love the freedom without the worry. Some freelancers might actually be doing better than some full-timers if they can handle the identity issues. The people who stayed multiple job holding for a couple of years actually found that they were able to achieve greater levels of authenticity. So what I mean by that is that they felt they had greater levels of self-knowledge because they were able to explore kind of simultaneous vocational interests and really understand how they could express themselves fully in one area and another area. And in doing so, they felt like it was an expression of who they were overall. So they didn't feel like they had to fit in the box of just being an X or just being a Y. They felt like if they were able to craft their career so that they could express X sometimes and Y at other times, they felt like they were more fully developing and expressing who they were as a person. However, people who are gig workers out of necessity, not choice, may never feel comfortable. We did have people who who did have the goal of 
moving into just one thing overall. And definitely they felt kind of overwhelmed. And so we found kind of two tracks of strategies to deal with this. One is to literally move down to just one job and just say, I can't deal with this anymore. There's too many balls. It's just not worth the time. The other is to think more cognitively about how these things work together. So what we found is that some people began to really see the overlap and perhaps the meaning or some aspect of the content of their two jobs, even ones that I would look at on the surface and say these are very different. Those are the people who may thrive in the gig economy, who don't struggle with the uncertainties. But Kaza says her study finds that even workers who decided to gig forever started out struggling with expectations their own as well as others. What we found was that people really are driven to do different types of things that might be complementary to one another. And they're not just necessarily looking at paring down into one gig over their whole careers. They really enjoy the variety of doing multiple things. But yet while they're motivated to do so, they do really report a lot of struggles, especially early in the process with understanding who they are, if they are doing so many different things. As well, they also feel that they have a hard time having other people understand who they are and what they do, because it's not easy to label their careers if they're doing multiple things with one term. And it's hard to explain to others why they're doing these things, especially if it's not clear that they have a financial motivation. Kaza says families may not understand why a gig worker would work a patchwork of jobs by choice and wonder when their family member is going to get a real job. The people who we've talked to who are multiple job holders in the gig economy talked a lot about feeling marginalized and feeling misunderstood and definitely feeling like one person described it as career ADHD. Another really popular adage is, jack of all trades, master of none. So they felt that actually doing multiple things, even if they're doing them well, the social perception is that they're not committed or perhaps not skilled enough in just one. And so they're compensating by having a second or third job. But even when a worker is temperamentally suited for gig work, Kaza and Chrysler say there are practicalities that have to be followed to make it work. For example, those who succeed at gig work set boundaries. It's a very common project management strategy, actually, is to block their time so that they concentrated very deeply on a certain set of tasks for a while and then might switch into another job. So this will minimize the switching costs between one job to the other. So this might mean like intense work on one job for a week and then intense work on another job for a couple of weeks. Or it might mean that throughout the week, people spent Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at one job and Thursday and Friday at another. Or another model is that they could spend mornings in one place and afternoons in the other if they figured out how to kind of make that transition smooth. But it, it does mean that you're not trying to literally do two things at the exact same time. So really thinking consciously about how you manage those boundaries. Freelancing has been around forever. However, today's scale has forced some states to clamp down to keep business from unfairly exploiting workers. Eventually, we may reach the equilibrium that exists in high-demand professions, and gig work can reach its promise. You can find more information about Jeff Chrysler, Dr. Brianna Kaza, and all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.org. This segment originally aired October 2019 and was written and produced by Reed Pence. Our lead producer is Kristen Farah. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. I'm Elizabeth Westfield.
Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. Most OBGYNs, there was this famous study that they only have about an hour of menopause training. That is a very small amount of training for what is a very long amount of time for women. Your survival guide to menopause. Then exposing the truth behind common medical myths. Just because a little bit of something can be good, can be very good, life-saving even, doesn't mean that more is going to be better. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. Since the 2020 census, San Francisco lost over 40,000 people, about a 5% decline. What was once hot is now not. Understanding the population peaks and dips across America. Then... We've spent billions of dollars enforcing cannabis laws. And this is money that in the neighborhoods that have been most targeted isn't going to schools, to hospitals, community centers. Making amends for the war on cannabis. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.